First Thessalonians, chapter one, verse one. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you, and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a typical. Pauline epistle, because once again he starts his epistle with his Christian name, which was very common during the first century, but also because he lists Silvanus and Timotheus after his name. Paul was a very humble man; he was quite happy to write an epistle which would not only go to the church in Thessalonica. But could quite easily be read in other churches, possibly even in Galatia, and also in Corinth. He was humble. He was quite happy, as I say, to share his office as an apostle with others. And here, as I say, two brothers are listed in the first verse of his epistle. You couldn't really imagine that happening in today's world. You can't imagine the Archbishop of Canterbury writing to the church in Oxford, for example, or Cambridge, or York, or any city in the United Kingdom, and in the first line of his letter, listing brother A and brother B. You can't imagine the Bishop of Rome, the so-called. Vicar of Christ, quote unquote, writing to a church in Los Angeles or Washington or even in Detroit, and listing person A or person B along with his name. It wouldn't happen because these men are quite content to take all of the glory for themselves. But Paul wasn't like that. He's also writing to the church singular in Thessalonica, not churches, but the church singular, and all of his epistles, except First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus, were written to the church via the elders. There's no one-man ministry here, but for me, this is interesting because he's writing to the church, no denominations. And I'll say this very briefly: that I've been to Israel and I've seen what a first-century church looked like, and for the most part, people met in their homes. Yes, synagogues were taken over if the Jews in that synagogue believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but for the most part, people met in homes, and they were very small. Today, the argument normally gets put forward by those that oppose. Biblical Christianity, as to why are there so many Protestant quote unquote denominations? Well, it's true there are many churches which claim to be Bible-believing Christians, and yet they are divided on many issues. But let me say this, if I may, please, that the Church of Rome isn't as united as it likes to be perceived to be. The Church of Rome is really split in two halves. You have the first half, which are the pre-Vatican II Roman Catholics, and the pre 
Vatican II Roman Catholics are led very much by people like Mel Gibson. And that organization curses, it anathematizes, it refuses to accept any Pope since Eugene Bocelli, who died in 1958. Any Pope since Pius XII, they do not recognize. In fact, they would consider any Pope since Pius XII to be an anti-Pope, to be the Antichrist. And they believe that during the Second Vatican Council, that the so-called bishops of Rome were hoodwinked, were taken in by Freemasons, by members of the Illuminati, and they have no time whatsoever for the post-Vatican II Church, and they certainly have no time for the ecumenical movement. The post-Vatican II Church, which today would be pretty much fronted by people like Tony Blair and some of your many American evangelical pastors, which have gone over to the Church of Rome in recent years, would look at the pre-Vatican II Church with contempt, because they would say that all religions are equal. In fact, all of the popes since Pius Twelfth believe that it is possible for Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists and Freemasons to be saved without faith in Christ, even though the Word of God makes it crystal clear that only through faith in Christ alone can you be saved. And even the pre-Vatican II Church of Rome are able to see through the fasts of the ecumenical movement. But even for those that are in the pre-Vatican II brigade, and there are perhaps several thousand worldwide, they are a very tiny group. Even those people are in error because they are trusting in the Tridentine Mass, they are trusting in the communion of saints, they are trusting in Mary, they are trusting in their communion, they are trusting in their works, in essence, to be saved. And they are just as much in error as the post-Vatican II Catholic would be. So they need to repent and they need to come to the Lord and trust in him alone to be saved. But my text here has Paul writing to the church singular in Thessalonica and he says they are in the Lord Jesus Christ and they are in God the Father what an amazing piece of scripture please go to Psalm 51 Psalm 51 is normally cited by conditional security people and even uh, the Church of England have a prayer where they say Lord give us the Holy Spirit but uh, the moment you were born again, you received the Holy Spirit. Uh, Psalm 51, look at verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. King David speaking. And here David says to the Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Meaning, as the king of Israel I need your Holy Spirit to function as the King of Israel. That's not in reference to you losing your salvation, but it was in reference to David losing his kingly anointing, which Saul lost his kingly anointing.
but he did not lose his salvation. And I've said this in other videos, so it's good to cross-reference the Old with the New Testament and see what the Word of God has to say, and above all, to dig deep, because sometimes people simply approach the Scripture on a superficial level and never get to the meat of Scripture. Back to First Thessalonians, please. Two, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Paul told us to pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean you are to pray 24-7, but it simply means that when you have time, you are to pray, and you are to pray without ceasing. And here he says in verse 2 that he gives thanks to God, because these were, for the most part, faithful Christians. And they get a wonderful commendation in the latter verses, whereas, for the most part, Paul had his hands full with the Corinthians and even the Galatians. But here, for the most part, the Thessalonians were pretty solid. They were pretty well-grounded Bible-believing Christians. 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Paul had the sign gifts. The apostolic sign gifts were given to the apostles because A, they were Jewish, and B, they were apostles. They were eyewitnesses to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were able to do miracles like nobody could or has ever done, really. But let me say this also, that if you go back to the Old Testament, even the greats like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel didn't do miracles anywhere near what the apostles did. They were writers. They were prophets. They were, in some ways, evangelists, calling the Jews back to repentance. But here, Paul says that he came unto them with power and great authority. And that, again, goes back to the reality that they were chosen, the apostles, of course, to do miracles. And the miracles were given to them to authenticate them as being messengers of the Lord. Because these men would write the New Testament. So when you come across people today that believe that the Jewish Apostolic sign gifts are still for today. For the most part, you are dealing with immature and sometimes carnal Christians. Most of what you see on Christian television or you hear on Christian radio, quote unquote, is nonsense. It's placebo. And I've spoken to charismatics and Pentecostals over the years and I've asked them and I've challenged them and I've invited them to join me and to go down to a hospital, go down to a children's ward and lay hands on sick children, on dying people. And those people have never taken me up on my invitation. 
because they know in their hearts that they cannot do what Paul did. Most people that go forward at these healing meetings get a temporary moment of excitement. They go forward, they've been listening, they've been watching, they've been sitting in the pews for a good period of time and the evangelist, quote-unquote, will give an invitation to go forward to be healed, quote-unquote, and they go forward and they get hands laid on them and, as I say, for a brief moment of time, they feel that they have been healed. But normally, the moment they return home, or possibly a day or two later, they fall back into their illness, which they suffered and have always suffered, and will continue to suffer from, because the Lord doesn't always heal everybody. Paul wasn't healed. In fact, due to Paul's illness, he was able to do great things for the Lord. But Paul says he came in much power. And of course, that power, as I say, goes back to the Holy Spirit, which was simply given to the apostles and possibly some of their associates to do great things. But if you read Acts of the Apostles carefully, if you read the Pauline epistles carefully, you see that there were saved people that were sick, that were not being healed. And therefore, even during the lifetime of the apostles, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were starting to cease. 6. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Archaea. That's what's important to me. That these people receive the truth with much affliction from verse 6. These people were ostracized for their faith in the Jewish Messiah. And the equivalent to that would be a Muslim living in the Middle East today that gets saved and suffers great persecution due to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, this first century epistle written to predominantly Gentiles tells us that they suffered great affliction because their families, for the most part, were pagans. But they received it with much joy. And above that, they became great examples, verse 7, to all that were in Macedonia and Archaea. Similar language to what you find in the book of Romans. These Christians were the best of the best. And their testimony, their faith, in Jesus was spoken abroad. That is a marvellous, marvellous piece of scripture. When you get saved, if you mean business for the Lord, he will turn your life around and you will shine. and People will see you and they will say, what a great brother or what a great sister you are. And when people speak highly of you in possibly your own church circles or even beyond your own church circles, you know that you have arrived, you know that the Lord has given you a special position, a special calling. But here, these Thessalonians are spoken abroad with great love, and that's a marvelous thing because there is nothing worse than being saved and never achieving anything for the Lord. And regrettably for me, I've met many Christians since I've been saved which are doing almost nothing 
for the Lord. They are disgruntled, they are despondent, they are bitter, they are backslidden, and they are sitting around waiting for the Lord to do something for them. And he won't do anything for these people. The Lord only uses those that are busy about his business. But uh, for these Christians, that wasn't a problem. They were spoken of abroad. Marvellous. Eight. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also in every place. Your faith to God ward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. 8. Builds on 6 and 7. Their testimonies were known abroad. And they would receive a great reward at the judgment seat for that. By 9 they have turned from idols, plural, to serve the living true God, singular. And that's repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. A turning from maybe unbelief to belief. And here they left their idols and serve the one true living God, true repentance. And by verse 10, we were told that the Thessalonians were waiting for his son to come for them from heaven. This is in reference to the rapture, not the second coming. Paul also says that he, God the Father, raised Christ from the dead, which he did along with the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, along with God the Son himself, John chapter 2. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. And he, Jesus, has delivered them from the wrath to come, not just the great tribulation, but also from hell itself. God the Son has saved us from God the Father. And through our faith in God the Son, we are safe. We are preserved from God's righteousness, his holiness, and his wrath, which he is going to pour out on the entire world. So these ten verses complete the first chapter of First Thessalonians. A great piece of scripture we saw from verse 1 that you are in the Lord Jesus and you are in God the Father and you are also in the Holy Spirit and I showed you from Psalm 51 that David prayed that God would not take the Holy Spirit from him not in reference to David's salvation but in reference to David's kingly position he had a special anointing which is not applicable for us today in fact david wasn't in the lord jesus christ he wasn't even in god the father but he had the holy spirit to anoint him to carry him 
to allow him to do what he did. So script with scripture, and we realize pretty quickly that David was not speaking about his eternal salvation, but he was speaking about his kingly anointing. Also from verse 4, it says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, meaning your service. And one day, Lord willing, I will get to the book of Romans, and I will spend some time looking at the ninth chapter. But my main point of interest so far, as I read through the first chapter, was how these Thessalonians had a great, marvellous, an almost impeccable testimony. It was known abroad. And they received the word of God with much affliction, with much persecution. And also I've mentioned how Paul, as a Jewish apostle, had the apostolic sign gifts. But also, like I say, it died out with the apostles. So we finish chapter 1, verse 10 with the Thessalonians waiting with anticipation for God the Son to come for them from heaven. Not a reference to the second coming, but a reference to the rapture, the great snatch, the calling away. Chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Paul suffered affliction, persecution, and even famine like nobody else ever did. He came from organized religion. And because he left his system, because he realized that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah, he was ostracized. He suffered great persecution. And I gave an analogy from chapter 1 of somebody living in an Islamic country that gets saved. And they too are ostracized and they suffer great persecution much like what we find in the first chapter the Thessalonians believed on the Lord and they turned from idols to serve the living and true God and they too suffered for it but they were also blessed as a result of turning from darkness to light I want to say this also that when we at ex-Catholics of Christ speak about organized religion and we do speak about this because it is a problem in fact Romans chapter 10 Paul said that the Jews wouldn't believe on the righteousness of Christ they wouldn't trust in the Lord alone to save them and therefore they remained in darkness and that is the reality of organized religion because it gives people a sense of belonging tribalism elitism sectarianism again these are problems which have always been around but I want to say this that not only do we speak about the Church of Rome and the many problems with their organized religion but what about the exclusive brethren what about the Amish community 
when somebody gets saved in the exclusive brethren or in the Amish community and they decide to leave those organizations, those sects, and both would offer themselves as Bible-believing organizations, when they leave those groups, they too are ostracized because both are hyper-Calvinist. Both believe that really they have the truth, quote-unquote, and I'll speak a little bit more about this when I get down to verse 16. But they too are ostracized. And what's difficult for them is not the same as what the Muslim in the Middle East will suffer from. Because in Islam, if you leave Islam and get saved, you are now considered an apostate. And that's one of the worst sins, quote unquote, that a Muslim can commit. But in the exclusive brethren... In the Amish communities, if you leave, you are now persona non grata. You are now surplus to requirements. You are now asked to leave. Not only will you lose your church fellowship, but many of these people work for one another. Can you appreciate what it must be like for an Amish man or woman to get saved? And not only be asked to leave your congregation, which is all you've ever known, but if you are a man in the Amish community, you will also lose your job. Because your employer could quite possibly be an elder in your church. And the same is true of the exclusive brethren. Many of these people that get saved also lose their employment. And therefore, it is a huge obstacle for them to overcome. The same is true in the Church of Rome. Many priests know that they are in a false system. But what can they do? Many of these priests have been in the system since they were teenagers. Some of these priests went to junior seminary. Some of these priests have been priests for 50, even 60 years. And the thought of leaving the Church of Rome in their 60s or in their 70s and claiming pension credit or even job seekers allowance is humiliating for them. So they do what most people do and they take the easiest route. They stay put. Like the Amish do, like the exclusive brethren do. But Paul didn't take the easy route. He left organized religion. And he said in Philippians chapter 3 that he considered it dung, worthless, dross, garbage, rubbish, because he wanted to receive Christ. But as I've already said from Romans 10, those that were in organized religion, those that were in Judaism, didn't want to believe on the Lord because it would cost him something. And therefore they clung to the law. And the apostles tried to break free from the law. They reached out to Jew and Gentile to get them saved. And it broke the heart of the apostle Paul when some of the Gentile believers, especially from Galatia, wanted to go back under the law. Something which he had fought all his life to be freed from because he couldn't keep the law. The apostle said so in Acts 15, and he knew that the law 
couldn't save, but it would ultimately condemn you and leave you really as a spiritual bankrupt Christian if you tried to live a life under the law. You couldn't do it. And I've made a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on Galatians, so you may wish to go back and listen to that. But here, really from verse 2, as I say, he preached the gospel with boldness under great persecution, great contention. And Paul was a selfless man. He was a very humble man. And if you want to aim to be a great Christian, Paul is your person to go to. Just one quick footnote. Uh, he starts chapter 2 with the term brethren. All of his epistles are written to saved men and women. And chapter 1 verse 4 he calls them beloved. The word of God is written to saved people. Until you are born again, this book makes no sense to you. And really and truthfully, until you are saved, you have no business reading the word of God. Because it's foolishness to you. But for those of us that are saved, it's our daily meat and we need it. Verse 3. For our exaltation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as ye were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. Don't be a man-pleaser, but please God. That's easier said than done, but it comes with time. The more you grow in grace, the more you read the Bible, the more you apply the principles of the Word of God to your life, you will realize that you don't want to be pleasing men, but you want to please God. But as I say, that comes with time, that comes with maturity, and it comes with growth. 5. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. They didn't seek glory. Paul never called himself Holy Father. He never called himself Reverend. He never called himself Bishop or Archbishop or Cardinal. He was a very simple man. In fact, in many ways, not only does he mirror Christ, but he also mirrors John the Baptist who lived a very desolate life. John wasn't in organized religion. He lived out in the wilderness. And yet the Lord used that man like few others had been used. Matthew 11 told us that all the law and the prophets prophesied up until John. Jesus said that he was the greatest man that ever lived, pre the arrival of the king, pre those that were going into the kingdom of God, but post the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that Paul was the greatest man that ever lived. 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Paul wears his heart on his sleeve. Paul 
is an amazing character to study. Yes, he was selflessness with a capital S. Yes, he was humble with a capital H. But here, he refers to himself as a nurse, cherishing her children. To the best of my knowledge, Paul was never married. Paul never had any children. But he would have made a great husband and he would have made a great father. But look at 8. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. What an incredible statement. Go to Romans, please. Romans chapter 9. And one day I will do a verse-by-verse -verse study on Romans. Look at Romans 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He was prepared to be cursed in order for his people to be saved. Moses said, Lord, blot me out of your book. Save your people. Incredible. Again, Paul sets an example which is almost impossible for us to ascertain. But from Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, he was willing to impart not only the gospel to them, but also their own souls. We can't really imagine how this would work in the 21st century. But here, Paul was willing to do whatever it took to see his beloved church grow. He said also that it was more beneficial for him to remain on the earth, even with his persecution, even with his affliction, even with his ongoing torment, even with his poor health. He couldn't even see. And yet he says, it's more beneficial for you that I remain. He could have gone to glory at almost any time. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked. In Acts of the Apostles, they pled with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And he was ready. He was ready to be with the Lord the moment he believed. But God said, no, you are going to be a chosen vessel for me. You are going to suffer for me. And uh, he'd suffered. He suffered a lot. But here, he's even willing to give his soul for the sake of the Thessalonians. Thankfully, he didn't need to die for them. Thankfully, he was preserved right up until the end of his life. Because he was on a very strict and controlled timetable, which he was oblivious of. In fact, he didn't know when he was going to die. He didn't know when the rapture was going to occur. He knew great things, but he didn't know when the Lord would return. In fact, even Jesus, as the Son of Man, in Matthew 24, didn't know when the second coming would occur. Yes, he knew as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, he didn't know. And this is where the problems continue to plague those that are in the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Christadelphians, 
and other cults, they fail to break down the deity of Christ versus the humanity of Christ. But my text here, really, from 8, is just mind-blowing. 9. For ye remember, brethren, our labour and travail, for labouring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. He preached, he worked among the people. He wasn't a burden unto the churches. He could have received money from the churches. He was a full-time evangelist. And yet he says, no, I will work with my own hands. I don't want to be a burden unto any of you. But he had the right to be supported. He was an evangelist, as I say. But uh, that wasn't what he was wanting to do. He wanted to be independent and at the same time not be a burden to them. 10. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how hollowly and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as ye know how we exalted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Nurse, now he's referring to himself as a father. But more importantly than that, he set the example. He wasn't the sort of man that said, do as I say, not as I do. He set the example. And he showed that it was possible to achieve great things for the Lord. Look at 12, that ye would walk worthy of God. That's your testimony. That comes after justification. Because God has called you into his kingdom. That's a reference not only to your salvation, but it's also a reference to your millennial inheritance. He wants you to receive a full reward at the judgment seat. Therefore, you have to walk worthy of God. You have to keep your testimony clean. That's imperative, people. 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye have heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It's only going to be applicable to you that are saved. It can't do anything for you until you are saved. And they received the truth from Paul as an apostle. They knew that Paul was an apostle. They probably checked him out like the Bereans did from Acts 18. But more importantly, he says that the word of God didn't come from man. It came from God. The Bible is divine in origin. Yes, God chose 39 authors living on three continents over 1500 years to write the 66 books of the Bible. But what they wrote came from the Holy Spirit. They were simply God's vehicle to pen his written word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His word will never pass away. The written word will never pass away. Amazing. 14. For ye brethren became followers 
of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. 14. The churches are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1. You are in God the Father, and you are in Jesus Christ. Once again, that is a clear picture of eternal security. Isaiah 43 spoke of you being in God the Father's hand. John 10 told us that we are in God the Son's hand. The Jews killed the Lord and also their own prophets. What you cannot do is claim that the word of God is anti-Semitic. That is fraudulent. That is a flawed argument because the Bible was written by Jewish men. But the fact remains that they killed the Lord and their own prophets. An apostate generation in every generation was responsible for the blood of the martyrs. Going right back to Cain. And here Paul says they killed the Lord and their own prophets and are persecuting us. 16. Forbidding us not to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. This is very similar to hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism doesn't believe in preaching the gospel. It doesn't believe in passing out tracts because they believe that God has already chosen those whom he is going to choose. But Paul says here that they are forbidding us. They are trying to thwart us from preaching to the Gentiles in order to be saved. He's putting a burden on this apostate group of unbelieving Jews. He's saying, if you don't let us preach to the Gentiles, they can't be saved. That means that the burden is on us to preach the gospel. We are expected to put tracts out to share the gospel as and when we can. We cannot get people saved. We cannot talk people into the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul has already said that he didn't come with enticing words, but he came with power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he had the Jewish apostolic sign gifts, but he had love, he had humanity, he had care, he had compassion. Here, he refers to himself as a nurse, from verse 8. A father, from verse 11. And therefore we too can mirror Paul. We can look at this man and achieve some of the things that he achieved. But if we don't get the gospel out, the latter part of 16 says, For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Therefore they are going to be held responsible. Because they tried to stop Paul preaching the gospel. But of course that was futile. They cannot stop the work of the Lord. They cannot overthrow the counsel of the Lord. 
17. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoured the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Paul loved the Thessalonians. He loved the Corinthians. He loved the Galatians. And yet he doesn't lord his apostleship over them. He writes to the churches via the elders and instructs the elders what they need to do. They already knew what they needed to do. He told us from Acts 20 that he prayed day and night. He preached for years to these saved elders as how to live. He preached the whole counsel of God to these elders. But time after time they needed reminding because the spirit of a saved man or woman is willing but the flesh is weak. Hence why we need these scriptures to read, to go to, to examine in order to bring us back into line because we can wander away from the Lord. But uh, if we would apply the scriptures to our life, if we would read it, if we would meditate and put it into action, then we would never really err. We wouldn't stray too far from him. But he desired to see their face. He loved them. As I say, he was a remarkable man. He wore his heart on his sleeve. 18. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. Satan was a great angel. He was revered. He was loved. And yet he fell. He fell through pride. He didn't like the idea of Adam receiving so much attention from the Lord. He didn't like the idea of mankind receiving so much attention from the Lord. He didn't like the idea that the second member of the Godhead would come to earth and live and die as a human being in order to save mankind and give back to the Father who would also give to the Son. Revelation chapter 4 tells us that everything was done for the glory of Christ. God the Father gives mankind to the Son and the Son gives it back to the Father. But here the devil had the ability to hinder Paul and some Christian groups quote-unquote don't believe that Satan is a literal angel is a literal person but they believe that our sin nature is the devil that will not do yes we have a sin nature yes we all have original sin we all know right from wrong which is what original sin is in essence but the devil is a literal person who is roaring around seeking whom he may devour and if you are saved but not in fellowship with the Lord then he has his eye on you he knows who you are he knows where you are he knows what you are doing and he may take you hostage for a period of time he may afflict you the Lord allowed Job to be afflicted the Lord allowed Paul to be afflicted and yet even though Paul and Job were afflicted they came through it and they came through it much stronger, much more mature than they were previously to the devil's interest in them. 
but uh, here from 18 the devil hindered them as you would do and if you are out and about for the Lord he will hinder you also it could be through sickness it could be through friends and family perhaps it may be that he can't get to you because you have a close walk with the Lord you have an untarnished testimony but your family aren't saved and therefore he may come at you through your family you may have saved family that are backslidden and he will come at you through them hence why it is imperative that if you are saved if you have saved family that you pray together that you stay together that you walk together and you eliminate the devil's options as to how he can afflict you 19 for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our lord jesus christ at his coming 20 for ye are our glory and joy so 20 verses conclude chapter 2 and we see much more of the person and nature of paul from verse 7 he refers to himself as a nurse from verse 11 he refers to himself as a father from 8 he was prepared to offer his soul for the Thessalonians 12 walk worthy of God that you would be worthy to receive the kingdom of God not their salvation their salvation was fixed on what Jesus did for them not what they would do for him but that they would receive a full reward at the judgment seat 16 he says that they the Jews the unbelieving Jews the apostate Jews the enemies of the cross the Judaizers those that were in organized religion those that wouldn't believe in the finished work of Christ they tried to forbid Paul from preaching to the Gentiles that they might be saved and he says for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost meaning be ready in season and out of season always be about your father's business the burden the responsibility the great commission is for you as it was for him 18 the devil hindered us from coming to you but he says you are my hope my crown and my rejoicing and finally from 20 they were his glory and joy so that concludes the second chapter of second Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1 wherefore when we could no longer forbear we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus our brother a minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto Paul refers to himself as a nurse in the second chapter who was even willing to impart his soul for the sake of the Thessalonians he also refers to himself as a father from the second chapter.
not Father Paul, quote-unquote, which the Church of Rome like to call their priests, but in the sense of being a father figure. He's concerned about this first century church, so much so that he even dispatches Timothy from verse 2, who is referred to as a brother, a fellow labourer, and a minister of the gospel, not in the sense that Timothy wore a collar, or wore a cone hat, or would have been referred to as Father Timothy, or the right reverence Timothy, no, but in the sense that he was a servant, he was an elder, he was also an evangelist. So we need to be careful when we look at the term minister in the Word of God, because how it was used in the Word of God isn't the same as how it is now used today. In fact, even in politics, a member of parliament can be referred to as a minister, clearly not in the religious sense, but in the secular sense. But, as I say, Paul dispatched Timothy to Thessalonica to make sure that everything was okay. For, for verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. This is not a reference to the great tribulation, but this is in reference to everyday tribulation, persecution, affliction. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul suffered it every single day of his life. And he's telling them that you will suffer tribulation. 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labour be in vain. He calls them beloved, and he knew these people, each and every one of them personally, but it may have been possible that some of these people had simply a head knowledge, and therefore he's saying that the tempter could have tempted them and deceived them, and therefore their work towards the Thessalonians would have been in vain. He also criticizes the Galatians for this problem of believing in vain, and therefore, as I say, Timothy is dispatched to find out what the problem is. Also from Matthew 13, the Lord refers to the parable of the sower, and sometimes these seeds are planted, and they don't take much deepness, they don't grow, they don't come to fruition, and therefore the Lord blames the devil, because the heart was never good enough, never quite right to receive the seed, and therefore Satan comes along and takes what was planted. And of course in Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the God, lowercase g, of this world, and he blinds the hearts of those that do not want to see and do not want to believe. But look at 5 again, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, he couldn't put it off, the anticipation the concern was killing him. Like I say, he wanted to know that there wasn't a problem, and he also wanted to be sure that the devil hadn't tempted them, that he hadn't robbed them of the simplicity of Christ, something which is endemic even to this day. Lordship salvation 
is a huge problem and it is engulfing churches all over the world. And the flip side to Lordship salvation is also easy believism. This simple concept of a one, two, three, pray with me concept and now I am saved. No, you're not. You weren't saved by saying a prayer. And you won't be saved by making Christ Lord of your life, quote-unquote, whatever that means. You will only be saved the minute you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust in him alone to save you. Yes, the fruits will come. Yes, the good works will come. But don't put the cart before the horse. Let's do things in the correct order. 6. Now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. Word came back to Paul that all was well, and that they were very much looking forward to seeing Paul. That gave him a sense of happiness, a great sense of relief, and a burden must have been lifted from his shoulders. Paul was a remarkable man. He was given a very special and unique ministry. He says he was the least of all the apostles, and yet there are more books written about Paul than there are on James or even on Peter. Paul the apostle turned the world upside down. He was a remarkable man, and the great thing about the scripture is that the Lord can use imperfect people like Timothy and also Paul. Paul had his flaws. He battled the old nature from Philippians 3 and Romans chapter 7, but he loved the Lord, and the Lord loved him. So if you feel that somehow you can't do anything for the Lord, that somehow you are imperfect, well, you will be imperfect, and you will always be imperfect. But if your heart's right with the Lord, if you are humble, if you are meek, if you are listening and willing and prepared to do what he wants you to do, then he will use you. But uh, my text here from 7 shows Paul in a sense of great happiness. And that's good because a lot of the time Paul was a very emotional man. Jesus is referred to as a man acquainted with grief, a man with sorrows. And Paul, like I say, mirrors the Lord Jesus Christ in many ways. But here he's got something to be smiling about. 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face, and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Paul must have been the number one motivator. He wanted to motivate and he wanted to encourage. And this language is also found in the epistle to the Romans. Night and day, it says, praying exceedingly that they would see the Thessalonians. Paul wasn't praying 24-7, obviously not. He had a job to do. He had to support himself. He had many churches to visit. He had epistles to write. 
he had a lot of travelling to do, but of course, please apply some common sense and you will understand that when Paul had time, he would be praying exceedingly for the Thessalonians, that they would be recipients of whatever they were lacking. And he wants to go to them, and he wants to give it to them in person. 11. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This verse from 13 is in reference to the second coming, not the rapture of the church. Please go to Matthew 24, Scripture with Scripture. The word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, that's true. But the term Bible doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible also. And yet we call this book the Bible. But here, this scripture from 13 is in reference to the second coming, not the pre-tribulational rapture, which I will get to soon. Look at Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This hasn't happened yet. And those that hold to the pre-trist idea that Matthew 24 and Acts chapter 2 has already occurred, I asked them, when did this happen? I also asked them, who are the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11? If this has already occurred, you should be able to answer these questions. But no pre-trist, to the best of my knowledge, has ever satisfactorily answered these questions. 29 refers to the stars falling from heaven, not literal stars, but angels, fallen angels, demons, the devil's troops, if you will. And verse 30 says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Hasn't happened yet. The second coming is going to be a public event. Much like when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem. They went around all of Jerusalem asking everybody where the Saviour had been born. That was intentional, of course. The Lord wanted people to be put on notice. But please note carefully that by the time the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus was about 18 months old. But when he was born, initially, when he was hours old, only the shepherds are sent to witness the birth of the king and only the shepherds get to see the birth of the king and the birth of the king which as I say the shepherds were privileged to see mirrors the rapture only the church are going to be raptured only the church will know when the rapture has occurred but here the second coming is going to be a public event 
mirrored very much, like I say one more time, by the Magi's as they marched into Jerusalem with their armed guard. 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. Hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. Look at uh, Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. You will come back with the Lord at the end of the tribulation, because you were with him throughout the tribulation. One more scripture, please. Go to Revelation chapter 19 and look at verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We are referred to in the epistle to the Ephesians as soldiers. Paul uses an analogy of a soldier and therefore by revelation we are glorified and we are going to come back with him as soldiers. We are in the army of the Lord as it were. So please take the time to study the passages in the word of God that clearly distinguish the rapture from the second coming of Christ. If you are able to read the rapture verses and also the second coming passages, you will see one thing, that the rapture verses have great peace and calmness and joy. But when you read the second coming passages, there's a sense of anguish, judgment and destruction. Please turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. This is in reference to the second coming of Christ, not the rapture. Second Thessalonians, please, chapter 1, and uh, let's pick it up from verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. This is not in reference to the rapture. He's coming to judge the world. He's coming to judge those that don't obey him from verse 8. And by verse 9, they are going to be punished with everlasting destruction. That term can also be translated everlasting torture. That's the second death. There's no annihilation in scripture. If you die an unsaved man or woman, you are going to be tortured forever. Because God is eternal, you are eternal. You were made in the image of God. And your soul is eternal because God is eternal. Look at chapter 2 and uh, go to verse 9. Even him whose coming 
is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and wonders. The man of sin, of course, from verse 3. Look at 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. They rejected the Lord. Second Corinthians 4.4 4, The devil will blind the hearts of those that are stubbornly and perpetually rejecting the gospel of Christ. This is the second coming. This is not the rapture. 11. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Does this sound like any Bible-believing Christian that you know? Of course it doesn't. During the Great Tribulation, the Lord is going to deal with the world. First and foremost, the Great Tribulation is the Lord dealing with Israel. But also, he is going to be dealing with the world system. And these people are going to believe a lie that God himself will send them. Because they wouldn't believe, they refused to believe the gospel, therefore they are going to be deceived, and eventually they are going to be damned. But look at 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church isn't going to go through the tribulation. The church won't be consigned to this seven-year holocaust. We know the moment that we believed. We were born again. We were forgiven. We were exonerated. In fact, the moment we believed, our spirits went to be with the Lord. We are already reigning with him in a spiritual sense, but our bodies are still here on the earth. Please go back to 1 Thessalonians 3 and look at verse 12 again. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. He must increase, I must decrease. The more you read the scriptures, the more you walk with the Lord, the more you unclutter your mind with the things of the world, the easier it becomes for you to be able to grow in grace and to love the brethren more and more and be a great ambassador for Christ. What we don't want are people to spend all of their time on their knees in prayer, reading the Bible, listening to so-called Christian preachers and watching Christian television, so-called, and to be so heaven-bound that they completely neglect to be a witness to those around them. We have to be faithful ambassadors. We have to be ready in season and out of season to share the gospel. Also, the flip side to that, we don't want to become so 
frantic, always running around, panicking that the Lord could come back at a split moment and therefore we have to be on the streets 24-7. That also isn't healthy and nor does the Lord expect that from us. There needs to be a healthy balance between being a faithful Berean in the scriptures and also being a faithful ambassador whether it's on the streets or whether it's on websites or forums or in any media setting wherever you feel the Lord would have you that's where you need to be but as I say just get the balance right it's good to enjoy yourselves it's good to relax it's good to be at peace with yourself and not be the sort of person who is always trying to do a hundred things at once if you continue on like that you will burn yourself out and again one more time the flip side if you are doing nothing for the Lord if you are sitting on your hands if you are a typical armchair critic then you are useless anyway and the Lord is not going to use you and you are doing more harm than good not only to your own so-called testimony but those around you which are actually doing something for the Lord so get up get busy and get out one final point from 13 Paul says to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God we aren't yet spotless we aren't yet unblameable in holiness we are still seeking and looking for glorification we still groan we still anticipate the day that we will be translated when we get our new bodies so 13 verses conclude the third chapter and like I say the main theme I guess really from this chapter is that Timothy a young and sometimes even fleshly brother in the Lord was still chosen by Paul he was still dispatched by Paul to go to Thessalonica to make sure everything was okay God does use imperfect people we must never forget that but we have to be willing and prepared and ready to be sent by him at a moment's notice if that's what he desires of us so we have finally arrived at chapter 4 and I just thought it would be worth me spending a few moments just discussing the subject of the rapture the harpazio as it is known in Greek the calling away the great snatch because the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture has been slandered it has been criticized and it is being rejected still to this day by many different groups of people and the sad reality is that it is the blessed hope that Paul also speaks about in Titus chapter 2 those that oppose the pre-tribulational rapture like to accuse the Jesuits of somehow being able to create this wonderful doctrine and by doing so take the spotlight off the Pope of Rome being the Antichrist the Pope of Rome 
is certainly a type of the Antichrist and he is certainly a false prophet. We don't need the rapture to take the spotlights away from the papacy. The Roman Catholic Church for 600 years under 80 popes has massacred about 50 million people. This Holocaust isn't spoken about in schools anywhere in the West and the reality is that most educational authorities know very little about this period of papal history the slaying as I say of 50 million people but uh, one thing that we can say for sure is that the Jesuits did not write the New Testament this is God's book 39 Jewish men living on three continents over 1600 years apart wrote the Bible the Holy Spirit inspired it and he has preserved it where the word of a king is there is power and we are a King James Bible believing ministry and this Bible study has been based completely on my King James Bible this also has been a non-scripted Bible study I like to put my headset on and simply read from the verses in front of me and offer my thoughts as I go along but uh, as I say the sad truth of the matter is that the blessed hope has been hugely misunderstood by those that wish to reject it and those that are defenders of it we find ourselves many times having to defend this wonderful belief that the Lord will come for his church before the great tribulation there was a church father back in the seventh century and I use the term father just for historical reasons the Word of God told us from Matthew 23 to call no man father and to call no man rabbi so when I say a church father you know that I am simply using an historical description of a particular character who would be known in the world of Christianity this man was called Ephraim and he wrote quite clearly that the Lord would come for his church before the Antichrist arrived and in Revelation 3 the Lord did promise not to expose his church to this tribulation this trial which was soon to come on the whole of the earth the entire face of the earth would experience the great tribulation those that oppose the rapture do so for many reasons and I think what I have noticed myself since becoming a Bible believing Christian and subscribing to the pre-tribulational rapture is that most people that reject the pre-trib rapture not only hold to a post-tribulational rapture but they also hold to conditional security and many of them 
not all, but many of them, also reject the King James Bible. So you are now dealing with conditional security believers using modern Bibles, also holding to a post-tribulational rapture. And the problem with conditional security, if you ever get a chance to examine it and to apply it, is that in reality it gives you no security whatsoever, no peace of mind. In fact, you live from day to day in fear that you could just possibly lose your salvation. You could sin willfully, not confess it, and then die. And according to these people, you would then go to hell. That is complete folly. You were saved right at the moment that you believed on the Lord, and he saved you to the uttermost. We know from Romans 8, there is nobody and nothing that can separate us from the love of God. The moment we have believed, the moment we have truly called upon the name of the Lord and trusted in him to save us, we are saved. So conditional security is as false and as flawed as the post-tribulational rapture. The whole thought that the church will go through the seven years and right at the end of the seven years be quickly caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds and then to come straight back to earth to rule and reign for a thousand years is as far as I am concerned ludicrous where is the hope in that most people that are going to be saved during the tribulation are going to be put to death only a few will be saved and preserved and protected right up until the end of the tribulation. The Antichrist will be using the guillotine, something which the French still have in their possession. They haven't used it for, I believe, over 100 years, but they still have the guillotine. It's also interesting when we watch the news around the world of Islamic terrorists and one of their favorite methods for dealing with their infidels, quote-unquote, and these apostates, quote-unquote, and these unbelieving non-Muslims, quote-unquote, is they like to behead those that refuse to believe on the moon god. Interesting, Islam also is a type of antichrist. I will just say this briefly, that the Antichrist is a person, but Antichrist is also a system. Anybody that denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. And First John told us there were many Antichrists going around during John's generation, during his time on the earth, and that's the main reason, really, for his epistle. So just a few opening comments that I wanted to put down before I get into the verses here. And you've got 18 very powerful verses ahead. So as always, I hope you are able to read along with me. And as always, I do my very best to read every verse as carefully and as attentively 
and as sincerely as I possibly can. And uh, my real aim and hope and purpose for making these types of videos is to clearly build up those that are saved, refute error, and above all to give God glory. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk, and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honour, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, and we also have forewarned you and testified. Okay, so there you find the first six verses from chapter 4, and as always, it is loaded with doctrine, and Paul, as always, writes to the Thessalonians with sincerity, with great love, and he is beseeching them from verse 1. He is begging them to walk worthily of the Lord that called them. If you are a Bible-believing Christian and you are not walking worthily of the Lord, then you are blaspheming him. And you are shredding your testimony and you are giving the enemies of God ammunition against you to attack you, to make fun of you, but even more importantly, you are giving the enemies of God a reason to blaspheme him. Hence why Paul says, please walk worthy of God. Keep the commandments which we've given you. Verse 3, abstain from fornication no sex before marriage god is very clear that whoremongers he will judge from the book of hebrews fornication as i say premarital sex is out adultery is out bestiality is out all these sins which the word of god lists clearly are prohibited and he says in 1 Corinthians 6 that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are born again, and if you are living with somebody that isn't your husband or your wife, and you continue in that sin of fornication, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. You will forfeit your right to rule and reign with the Lord in the millennial kingdom. And if you are not saved, you will pay for your sin of fornication at the great white throne. But here Paul, as always, wants the Thessalonians to be right with the Lord. He wants them to receive a full reward at the judgment seat. And he says, don't do what the Gentiles do. These pagans, these infidels that don't even know the Lord. 
please don't do what they do. He wants him to be as tight as a drum and walk as closely with the Lord as they possibly can do. 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 1, told us that we are in God the Father, and we are in Christ Jesus. And here, we are also in the Holy Spirit. We have the triune God living within us. So, as I said from chapter 1, when David cried to the Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me, because the Holy Spirit is God, and he came from God. He clearly was referring to his priestly, kingly anointing. He doesn't say, don't take the Son from me, and don't take the Father from me, because nobody had the Father or the Son in the Old Testament. But here and now, for the church age, the moment you believe on the Lord, you are in the Father, and you are in the Son, and you are in the Holy Ghost. You have the triune God living within you. It is therefore impossible to lose the triune God. You can quench the Holy Spirit, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, and, worst case scenario, you can forfeit your right to rule and reign with the Lord during a thousand years. And that right was given to you by the Lord. But uh, for me, verse 8 is amazing because this was unheard of for those living pre-Christ, but those living post-Christ are the recipients of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the moment they believe truly on Him. And as I say, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot be cut off, as it were, from the triune God. You can lose your fellowship with the Lord. You can become fruitless. You can stray. You can wander. You can backslide. And you can even commit the sin unto death. But that normally happens only when the Lord has reached out over a period of time to wayward Christians and they haven't repented, they haven't come back to him and therefore he deems it suitable to simply take them home like Ananias and Sapphira. But that's the exception, not the practice. Nine... But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. How true that is. The moment you got saved, you had a love for other Bible-believing Christians. In fact, the moment you got saved, I put it to you, you had a love for everybody you were on cloud nine. You were filled with happiness and joy. You beamed. You had the greatest smile 
that you've ever had and people could see a great change within you but this love is a true love this love should be strong enough for you if need be to even lay your life down for another bible believing christian eric little was a prisoner of war during the second world war and he was a true man of god and he found himself in jail really during the second world war and the japanese held him as a prisoner because they invaded china and during his time in jail he was able to not only win souls to christ but he was also able to encourage and disciple those saved men and women in his detention center as a prisoner of war he had some rights under the geneva convention but the japanese didn't recognize the geneva convention the germans did but the japanese did not towards the end of the war he was very ill and a decision was taken from the japanese high command to offer eric little a pardon he was ill in fact he was dying if the truth be known and the authority said to eric little you can be released at a certain time on a certain day if you wish to and he said no thank you i will stay where i am but i wish for this fellow prisoner a lady that had also been detained to be released in my place she was also pregnant and eric little realized that he was dying his life would soon be over anyway and therefore he remained in prison and through this love found here in verse 9 he let this lady take his place and leave the prison she was quite possibly a saved woman in fact i am almost certain of it he knew how to love another person he didn't need to be taught how to love another person he had the love of christ and he went down in history as a great man of god never mind his olympic medal which he won back in the 20s in paris i believe it was but he was a remarkable man in the sight of god his death was mourned all over scotland but in heaven they rejoiced that a saint went home in great glory 10 and indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all macedonia but we beseech you brethren that ye increase more and more and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that ye may walk honestly 
toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. These people were to work with their own hands. They were to silence those that were outside of the church. Their testimonies were to be spotless. They weren't ever going to be sinless. Paul wasn't sinless. I've already said from Romans 7 and Philippians 3 how he battled the flesh on a day-by-day basis. But he wants to increase them. He wants to build them up. As I say, Paul was the original motivator, I believe. Also from 11, he says you are to study and you are to work with your own hands. I want to say a couple of things here, if I may, from verse 11, to study and to work with your own hands. Paul also said from 2 Timothy 2.15 that you are to study to show yourself approved unto God. Not only is that applicable to those that are elders or evangelists, but I believe it is also applicable and imperative to all Bible-believing Christians. Because if you study the Word of God, you can then go on to rightly divide the Scriptures. And one of the reasons why people, I believe anyway, reject the pre-tribulational rapture is because they haven't rightly divided the Bible. They read the Gospels and they think that all of the content found in the four Gospels is applicable to those of us living in the church age today. And it is not. Most of what you find in the four Gospels was applicable to the Jews living under the law and also to those living during the thousand year reign. And I will discuss that more on another occasion. If you could rightly divide the word of truth, you wouldn't have the rapture coming at the end of the tribulation, but you would have it coming at the beginning of the tribulation. If you could rightly divide the word of God, you wouldn't have the Jewish apostolic sign gifts being for today. You would have seen that they died out, even during the life of the apostles. And yet, during the Great Tribulation, those sign gifts are going to be re-implemented and given to the 144,000. And when the Lord said in Matthew 24 that it's not possible for the elect to be deceived, he, of course, was not only referring to the 144,000, but he was also referring to those that would believe what these Jewish male virgins had taught them and I believe they will also have the sign gifts but again these things come with study these things come with time also from 11 he commends them to work with their own hands and employment should always be sought where possible sometimes people can't work through illness or through unemployment and please let me say this that if you are In one of those two camps, you shouldn't feel ashamed. If you are unable to work through disability, through some long-term illness, or maybe you are overqualified or underqualified, you shouldn't feel ashamed. All you need to do is trust in the Lord to provide for you. 
and use your time wisely. But here Paul really wants the Thessalonians to be busy about the Lord's work and not to be gossipers and busybodies and really giving an occasion for the devil to come along and cause you to fall into fornication from verse 3 and 4 and be as guilty as the Gentiles are from verse 5 and go on to blaspheme the Lord which is also found in Romans and other parts of the New Testament so these first 12 verses are all leading up to the rapture and that is the main theme of first Thessalonians these first century Christians were worried and they were quite rightly concerned that those that had died in the Lord wouldn't witness the rapture they wouldn't be a part of his return and that's why Paul wrote to them and that's why Paul dispatched Timothy to them this is a pretty solid church this church wasn't like the Corinthians carnal this church wasn't like the Galatians legalistic this church were for the most part spotless when it came to doctrine but understandably somebody somewhere had been preaching that the Lord's return would come and those that had died would miss out and they like all Christians were eagerly anticipating his return and as I say that's why this epistle was written quite possibly around 56 AD some of the epistles are written earlier some are written later Matthew we believe was written 39 AD James was written 44 AD 1st Corinthians about 56 AD and this epistle I would say is around the late 50s all of the New Testament books were written pre 75 AD apart from Revelation so that's a pretty close period of time from the death of the Lord from the death of the Apostles all this nonsense about 2nd century and 3rd century writings is completely fraudulent. Every book in the New Testament was written by an eyewitness or a disciple of the Apostles. And these men saw what they saw and they wrote what they wrote. As I've said so many times now that the Lord inspired the Bible and the same Lord has preserved the Bible. 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Don't be like the Gentiles are. Don't grieve the loss of a loved one. You believe in the one true God. You know God personally. This is what the Lord was upset about from John chapter 11. It says Jesus wept. He wept at the response from the Jewish people at the death of Lazarus. They grieved him as unbelievers would grieve the death 
of a loved one. And this is heartbreaking for Paul. He's saying, please don't be ignorant. Don't sorrow like the pagans sorrow. 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring back with him. That's what got you saved when you believed that Jesus died and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15. That is the gospel that Paul preached. That's what got you saved. That's what got me saved. I wasn't saved by being baptized. I was saved by believing that Jesus died and after three days was raised from the dead. God the Father resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1. God the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Romans chapter 8. And God the Son raised himself from the dead. John chapter 2. Once again, the triunity of God is seen throughout Scripture. The Trinity is a biblical doctrine, not a papal pagan doctrine. One God in three persons. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's what you need to believe people to be saved. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring back with him. Back to heaven, of course, at the rapture. And this term for sleep doesn't mean a snooze. It is a metaphor for dying in Christ. The bodies sleep, not the souls. There is no soul sleep, people. Your bodies sleep. The bodies were resurrected from Matthew 27. And the bodies of the saints walked around Jerusalem. Bodies sleep, not the souls. 15. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. This is straight from God. Every word in the Bible is inspired, but here Paul says expressly, This we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we, he even includes himself, because he didn't know when the Lord would return. He lived with anticipation that Christ would return, and could return if he had wanted to in Paul's day, but Paul didn't know. Paul didn't know any more than we know. In fact, nobody knows when the Lord is going to return. The Mormons don't know. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't know. The Roman Catholics don't know. The Church of England doesn't know. And I don't know. Paul didn't know. And he says one more time, For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we, which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent them which are asleep. We won't stop the dead going up. They believed and it wasn't their fault that they died when they died. 
And therefore, if we are alive, when the Lord returns, we will not prevent the dead going up. They're not going to miss out on this amazing event. Look at 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. Rejoice in the fact that we are all going to be partakers of the rapture. Those that have died are going to go first, and those that are alive are going to go up afterwards. Let's break down verse 16, if we may. The Lord himself comes from heaven, Jesus Christ, of course. He comes with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. Michael is the only archangel found in scripture. And Michael in Hebrew means who is like God. Jesus means Jehovah saves. So Michael is not Jesus and Jesus is not Michael. It's imperative that I make that point. The Lord comes from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. This is some kind of angelic escort. Please turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 51. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Angels carried him up into heaven. At the rapture, the archangel comes with him. Maybe more angels join Michael, but at least one angel comes with him. We know from the Gospels that when we believed on the Lord and we confessed him as Lord, he confesses us not only before his Father, which is in heaven, but also before his holy angels, which are in heaven. Angels rejoice when a sinner repents. And here, as I say, Michael comes back with the Lord at the rapture. One other quick point I want to squeeze in, if I may, to show you how angels operate in the Word of God. If you go to Luke 16 and read verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. No mention of any angels for the rich man, but the beggar is carried by at least two angels when he died. So angels were clearly assigned to the beggar as a believer on the Lord. And we also read from verse 16 from 1 Thessalonians that at least one angel leaves heaven 
with the Lord. Some people believe that the moment a sinner gets saved, he stroke she receives a guardian angel. Personally, I'm not convinced either way. I can see scripture telling us, and I've just shown you from Luke 16, how angels are clearly dispatched to gather the body of the beggar and also when Peter escaped from prison and he made his way to where the church were praying they thought it was his guardian angel so you can see there are scriptures which seem to suggest that we have guardian angels which are assigned to us but only if we are born again but maybe I need to do a little more study into this whole area. 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's your word for a rapture. Harpazio, the great snatch, the calling away. And the word rapture, by the way, appears in the Latin Vulgate of all places. They have the word rapture. But uh, we use it because it's the easiest way to describe the catching up of those that are alive on the earth and are awaiting the Lord's return. 18. Again, comfort one another with these words. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. He wants to encourage them. Obviously, he does. He doesn't want them to be grieved. He doesn't want them to be worrying. He says that the Lord will come from heaven with Michael. The Lord will meet you in the clouds, in space. And we go to be with the Lord. We go to the judgment seat. We go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We spend seven years with him in heaven. And Revelation 4 through to 19 has the Lord dealing with Israel and also the world Revelation 19 we come back with him Colossians 3 foretold us that we will return with him and we can only return with him because we were raptured to go to be with him pre the tribulation like I say the belief that the church goes through the great tribulation and at the end of the seven years is raptured only to be brought back to earth makes almost no sense whatsoever but here Paul makes it clear that the dead go first and then those that are alive and remain are also going to be raptured please go to first Corinthians 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This is the last trumpet for the church age. 
not the trumpets found in Revelation, but the last trump, which is going to herald the end of the church age and the commencement of the great tribulation. Flesh and blood from 50 cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Something has to happen in order for us to be able to enter into heaven. In and of ourselves, we cannot go into heaven. There's an analogy given in Matthew 18, I believe it is, of the king having a party and somebody manages to find his way into the king's presence and this person isn't wearing the king's garment but he's wearing his own garment and the king says bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. That's a picture of an unsaved person having the audacity to stand in the presence of God and say, I don't want your son's imputed righteousness. I'm going to retain my own righteousness. I'm going to trust in my own good works, my own beliefs, and I'm going to hope for the best. And God says, no, that's not going to work. You're lost. Off to hell you go, second death. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, at the rapture, we are going to be translated. We are going to get new bodies. Also the dead that have been waiting in the ground are also going to be given new bodies. It doesn't matter if you were cremated as a Bible-believing Christian. It doesn't matter if you drowned at sea. It doesn't matter if you were burnt in a house fire. If you died trusting in him, he will resurrect you. He put you together. He can rebuild you if he needs to. He made the earth out of nothing. He sustains the universe all by himself. He can quite easily put you back together any way he chooses. And he will do so and you will get a new body. And your new body will be joined to your soul and your spirit. And you will be able to live forever in his presence. Also, the unbeliever gets a new body to burn forever. 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is now abolished. The church age has ended. And off we go into glory, which starts at the rapture. As I say, we are going to receive new bodies. We are going to be sinless. We are going to recognize other saved people in heaven. Peter, John, and Andrew recognized Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. We too are going to recognize all of the saved greats that have gone before us. We are going to be sinless 
and we are going to be sexless in heaven. We are going to have our own mansions, and we are going to judge angels, and some people even believe we are going to receive our own planets and possibly even our own solar systems. I can't offer much on that, but uh, as I say, some people hold to that belief. But it comes in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Not the trumpets from Revelation, please, one more time. This is the end of the church age, the last trumpet. It's going to happen so quickly you won't even see it coming. People will be walking to work, for example. One person is going to be raptured, the other is going to stay behind. A bus driver could be taking his passengers on a journey and he is raptured. And the passengers on the bus, if they are not saved, are going to encounter a crash. Pilots, engineers, politicians perhaps, those that are in positions of authority or not are going to be raptured simultaneously all over the world. We are all going to go at the same time. Even if we are not walking with the Lord, even if we are carnal, we are going to be raptured. Even if we don't even believe in the rapture we are going to be raptured there is no split rapture we are going to be raptured whether we are ready or not and we are going to be raptured whether we believe it or not it's going to happen that's why the word of god says be holy for i am holy that's why the emphasis is constantly placed on the bible believer keep yourself clean don't fall into sin renew your mind every day study the word of god rightly divide the scriptures and you will be ready at a moment's notice because it's going to occur in a split second like i say pilots oil tankers bus drivers train drivers these people are going to be raptured and if you are on a bus or on a plane or on a ship and you're not saved, <laughs> it doesn't look very good, does it? Because you are going to encounter an accident and possibly even witness a fatality, which could possibly even include yourself. Hence why Paul says, now is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the accepted time. Don't put it off. You need to be saved today. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today. Chapter 5, verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. He has already carefully and skillfully and patiently laid out from chapter 4 how the rapture is going to occur the dead are not going to miss out on this splendid one-off event in fact they are going to go up first it was irrelevant how they died it is irrelevant in what 
condition they were once they died, meaning if they were cremated, it wasn't and it isn't a problem, if they even drowned and were never found, it was and it is irrelevant. The Lord God can and will resurrect them in whatever state they died at, and he will give them a new body which will be joined to their soul and spirit which has been with the Lord. The same is true of those of us which are privileged to be alive waiting for his return. We too are going to get new bodies which will be joined to our spirits and our souls and we are then able to enter into his presence. For me, Enoch represents Gentiles that are alive when the rapture occurs and off they go into heaven. Enoch never died and we, if we are privileged enough to be on the earth when he returns, are also never going to die. Elijah is a type of the Jew living on the earth at the time of the rapture that is going to be saved and they too are never going to die. Noah is a type of those that get saved at the beginning of the great tribulation and they board the ark, the ark being a type of Christ and they go through the tribulation and they are preserved and come out safely at the end of the tribulation. But my text says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Please understand one thing, that Paul is writing, first of all, to his initial audience around 56, 57, 58 AD, dealing with their insecurities, their worries and their concerns about whether or not they would experience the Lord's return. And of course he puts their minds at rest. He's also writing vicariously to those living today in the church age. And he is also writing vicariously to those living in the tribulation. Times plural, seasons plural. The rapture is one event. The second coming is another event. Please turn to Matthew 24. The Jehovah's Witnesses do a terrible disservice to the character and nature of our blessed Saviour and they fail miserably to interpret the scriptures and to understand that Christ is the Son of Man and he is also the Son of God and they focus primarily on the Son of Man. When they get to the area of the Son of God all they say is that he is God's Son but wasn't Adam also called the Son of God? Aren't we called sons of God when we are saved, of course, and yet we don't have sinless blood? He did. Matthew 24, please, look at verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. As the Son of Man, he didn't know at that moment in time when the second coming would occur and that's why Paul said the just shall live by faith we don't know when the rapture is going to occur it was possible 
that it could have occurred in Paul's generation. He even says, for those of us which are alive and remain. He even included himself in that piece of scripture, because he too hoped to go up in the rapture. He didn't know. So because we don't know when these things are going to occur, we have to live by faith. We don't want to get caught up with all this charismatic hysteria of people claiming to have been to heaven and back, and some even claiming to have gone to hell and back. Paul said that I hadn't seen and ear hadn't heard what God had prepared for them that are awaiting to be with him. That's a quote, of course, from the Old Testament. But he said, I went to the third heaven and I saw things which couldn't be uttered. He wasn't able to share with his audience, with his first century churches, some of the amazing sights that he had seen. And yet these people make a living off their DVDs, off their books, off their speaking engagements, going all over the world, giving these talks about heaven and hell, so on and so forth. It is nonsense. Luke chapter 16. Abraham told the rich man that died in his sins that even if somebody from the dead would be resurrected and permitted to go and talk to unsaved people about what they had seen, even that wouldn't result in the salvation of people's unbelieving hearts. Even that in and of itself wouldn't bring about the new birth. Unless somebody's heart is willing, unless somebody is sensitive to the things of the Lord, unless somebody is even willing to be identified with the worst type of people, around because the Lord came to save sinners not the righteous unless people are prepared to reach out to God as a beggar and say God be merciful to me a sinner he won't save you and he won't do anything for you so please understand one thing that we must live by faith Visions and prophecies and trips back and forth to heaven and private visitations with the Lord. And the same is also true of these so-called Catholic apparitions. That too is not of God. The just shall live by faith. Please go back to chapter 5 from First Thessalonians. Chapter 5, look at verse 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. If you read the book of Isaiah, if you read it carefully, you will see that in many places, Isaiah writes about the first coming, the second coming, the great tribulation, and also the millennial reign, sometimes in the same chapter, and sometimes... A simple comma or semicolon separate the first coming from the second coming, the tribulation from the millennium. 
Therefore, what you are finding here in 1 Thessalonians 5.2 is Paul having to address different people in different dispensations. Here he's saying, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. That's not a reference to the rapture, although the rapture will occur in a split second, like a thief in the night, you won't expect it to occur. But here, this is in reference to the end of the tribulation. Even those living in the days of Noah were marrying, they were living and doing their thing right up until the flood came. He preached right up until the very end, and yet they remained indifferent and in unbelief. And he says here from verse 3, for when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. They, them, in reference to the world, they know that something is going to occur. Those living during the time of Noah knew that judgment was going to occur. A woman knows when she is pregnant that at the end of her pregnancy she is going to give birth they know during the great tribulation that something is going to occur but men love darkness rather than light and therefore they suppress the truth in unrighteousness and he says for when they shall say peace and safety here you find a false assurance that everything is going to be okay then comes sudden destruction that's the end of the tribulation that's the gathering together of those that have survived the antichrist's reign and he is going to separate the sheep from the goats and the goats are going to go off into everlasting fire which is the second death and the sheep are going to go into the thousand year reign which post the 1000 years goes off into eternity but here as i say paul is looking beyond the rapture, I believe, to the end of the tribulation. Verse 4, But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. This isn't going to affect those of us that are living today. Because if the rapture occurs in our lifetime, we are not going to see this. We won't see the false prophets, we won't see the Antichrist. And how wonderful is that? One more time. But you, brothers, are not in darkness. That that day should overtake you as a thief. Even for those living during the tribulation, even for those that get saved during that awful holocaust, this day isn't going to overtake them. They will be saved and they will be preserved on the ark, which, as I say, is a type of Christ, and they will come out safely at the other end. Yes, many people, many saved people, are going to be put to death in the tribulation, but uh, a fair few are going to be preserved and kept safe. 5. 
Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Darkness is always synonymous with evil, with depravity, with the devil himself. Four and five should be even more reassuring to those of us that are alive today, that we are not going to witness this, we are not even going to be here when this prolonged period of darkness sweeps the earth. 6. Therefore let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken, are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Again, sleep here could be a metaphor to those that have slept in the Lord and are awaiting the resurrection, but it can also mean indifference. It can mean being in a state of complete obliviousness to what is going to occur. And here he wants the Thessalonians, and I put it to you, all of us, to be on guard to be on notice. Don't sleep, don't slumber, don't be like those that are completely indifferent, those that are completely outside of the kingdom of God, but be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love. Again, that feeds back into your testimony. We were told to be ready in season and out of season, not only to witness to the lost but also to be ready to go in a twinkling of an eye, in a split second. 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. 9. Says we obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, which we did. He has reconciled the world to himself. He has drawn all men unto himself. He has granted repentance to the Jews from Acts chapter 5 and also to the Gentiles from Acts chapter 11. He has granted whatever he had to grant. He has done whatever he had to do he has paid for all of the sins of the world. He has done everything that was expected of him. Therefore, we cannot boast in our salvation. We got saved because he granted us salvation. He drew us unto him. The word of God says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So we give him all the praise and we give him all the glory. And uh, also from verse 9, we were told that we are not appointed to wrath. Not only is that in reference to the tribulation, I believe, but that's also in reference to hell. God the Son saved us from God the Father. He saved us from God's holiness, from his righteousness, from his expectation 
that we should be like he is. Because he is holy, we should be holy. Because he is sinless, we should be sinless. But, of course, we can't be sinless. Therefore, Christ died in our place. Also, from 10, Paul says, Whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Whether we are in the ground, awaiting the rapture, or whether we are alive and remain on the face of the earth for his return, we are going to live together with him. Also, this term, wake, as I say, can be in reference to being oblivious sometimes to the things of the Lord. It can also be in reference to somebody who is out of fellowship with the Lord, somebody who has backslidden. And here he says, whatever position, whatever situation you are in, we are going to live together with him. And verse 11 is obvious, but let me read it anyway. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. What a simple piece of scripture. Comfort yourselves together. You were told from the previous chapter that if you died in him, you are still going to see his return. And you were told that those that were alive and remained unto his coming are also going to see his return in a split second. He promised from the cross to the rapture that he would never leave us, nor would he forsake us. We are eternally saved the moment we truly believe on him and trust in him to save us. No other religion, people, can boast of this. 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. You are to recognise your elders. You are to respect your elders. In fact, Paul says you are to give double honour to your elders, not in reference to a paycheck, because we were told to honour our parents, but Paul says to give double honour to our elders, meaning respect, of course, because these elders from verse 12 labour among you. They work alongside you they also have jobs to do the whole idea of a one-man paid minister didn't take ground until the second and third century i went to a church some years ago when i first got saved and this church had four elders which were pretty educated they had a good handle of the scriptures they were respected among the congregation but this church also had a paid pastor now if you have a church which is run by four elders or three elders or two elders depending of course on what sort of church you have depending of course on the size of your church you don't really need to pay a pastor as well 
that money which you collect each week if you have a collection could be better put to use you could buy bibles you could buy tracks you could produce dvds and you could even sponsor missionaries in other parts of the world but this church wanted to pay this pastor but my understanding of the scriptures is that the elders work alongside you they are not over you in the sense of being your lords or your kings or your bosses but they labor among you and therefore they are to be given respect because these men also teach you the bible they are there for you during the difficult times during the hard times that you go through and uh, many churches around the world these elders are also working full time some of these elders are working very long hours and yet they still find time to study the bible to prepare weekly messages and some of these men even go on the streets and preach and uh, travel to poor countries and visit missionaries and others that have gone out to do great works of outreach and building churches so on and so forth and therefore they are to be loved and they are to be admired but please let me say this one more time the idea that one man is your protestant priest as i call him who receives a salary isn't found in the word of god and really that is an unfortunate carry over really from the reformation the reformers were able to reform many parts of biblical truths like salvation through faith in christ alone and the scriptures being our final authority but regrettably what they failed to throw out was this protestant priest this one man paid ministry and uh if you are starting a new fellowship from scratch please keep in mind what i've just said have two or three men that are godly they of course will be recognized from within your meeting and they will teach the word of god they will rotate the responsibility of teaching and preaching and they should be more than capable of uh, giving you a good word a good message each week from the word of god 14 now we exhort you brethren warn them that are unruly comfort the feeble-minded support the weak be patient toward all men see that none render evil for evil unto any man but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men yes they were beloved yes they were the apple of his eye yes they were pretty sound when it came to the doctrine of christ but they weren't immune from backbiting you are not immune from backbiting you are not immune from hypocrisy and here he wants them to be careful not to fall into the trap of the corinthians which were the most carnal church in the entire new testament 16 rejoice evermore john chapter 11 it says jesus wept two very sad words 
two very emotional words. Two devastating words. Jesus wept. Here, rejoice evermore. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Be happy. Enjoy your salvation. Praise the Lord. Be busy about his business. Live your life as if it were the last day, but do it all for his glory. Smile, enjoy yourself, rest in him. 17. Pray without ceasing. Again, not 24-7 on your knees, but when you can. Pray in the Spirit. Pray that God will give you the ability to go on to do greater things for him. Don't just be content with the fact that you've got Matthew down. What about Luke? What about John? What about Romans? Keep on going. Don't just rest on your laurels because you gave out 20 tracks last week. Aim for 40 this week. Aim for 60 the following week. Aim for 100 by the end of the month. Pray without ceasing. Stay in the spirit. Annihilate the flesh. Put the old man to death. Keep on growing. Keep on maturing. Don't just be content to cruise as a Christian. Put yourself in top gear. Keep on going for him. 18. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. If you love God... He loves you, and he called you for his purpose. Therefore, in everything, give thanks for him. Even when the bad things come, even when things seem grim and impossible to escape, even when you are at your lowest, even when you are about to give up hope, give him thanks. Because my experience has shown me time after time after time that when I have been up against it with my back to the wall, he brings me through it. And I come through it better, stronger, and more mature than I was previously. Every trial and tribulation is painful and nobody enjoys going through these. But we have to expect it because he is going to continue to prune us and mould us and shape us into what he not only wants us to be, but what he knows that we can be. He won't allow us to be tempted or tried beyond what we can endure. 19. Quench not the Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't use your liberty as a Bible-believing Christian, to live as you please. Don't live after the flesh. If you live after the flesh, you will quench 
the Holy Spirit, you will grieve the Holy Spirit, and he will not use you, and you will feel awful, you will feel dry, and you will, if you're not careful, become completely unusable by the Lord. Your friends and family, if they are saved, if they even know that you are a Christian, will see you as a hypocrite. They will see you as a worthless example of what a Christian should be. And that, again, gives license to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme him. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. If you have a problem in any area of your life, if you have a fleshly problem or an addiction, deal with it. It could be the internet, deal with it. It could be sport, deal with it. It could be somebody in your life, deal with them. Sort it out. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Rejoice evermore from 16. That's what Paul wants you to experience, not to be unhappy. 20. Despise, not prophesyings. There are two types of prophecy in the scripture. There's foretelling the future, like Agabus did. And there's also rejoicing in the Lord, like Elizabeth did. Here, Paul says, don't despise prophesyings, like Elizabeth, like Philip's daughters did, like Zacharias did. They prophesied, they proclaimed the goodness of the Lord. He says, don't despise these prophecies, these prophesyings. Don't despise them. Let everything be done in order. 21. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. That is imperative. Prove everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Retain the truth. Test everything. Again, two types of prophecy. If you feel that prophecy is still for today, you have to test it in light of Scripture. My understanding of prophecy when it comes to foretelling the future is that it has ceased. And I'll show you why I think it has ceased. If you go to the book of Galatians, and if you read from... Chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. Paul didn't know who this person was. Go to Acts chapter 5. Galatians is written about 50-something A.D. Acts of the Apostles is written about 60 A.D. But what you find in Acts covers a 30-year period. Look at Acts chapter 5. This is no more than a couple of years after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, look at Acts 5, verse 3. But Peter said... Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost 
and to keep back part of the price of the land. Peter knew from verse 2 that Ananias and Sapphira had decided to sell the land, but to keep back a large piece of money. He knew that because he had the gift of prophecy. He knew what the future was, as did Paul at the same time, I might add. But later, and I showed you from Galatians 5, that gift had ceased. Look at verse 4. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? So clearly here you see that Peter, around 32, 33, 34 AD, had the gift of prophecy. He could see what was going to occur. The Lord showed it to him. Paul also had the same gift, which I've already shown you from Galatians, but that is a good 20 years later on. That gift had ceased. But here Paul says, don't despise prophesyings, which clearly meant they were still applicable to that day for that generation. And therefore, you are to prove everything and retain that which is good. 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. It may be innocent to you, but how does it look to others? This is a very simple piece of scripture, and yet it is a very deep piece of scripture. How does it look to the world if you are a saved man or if you are a saved woman and you are seen going into a bar? Therefore, it's best that you abstain from all appearance of evil. Yes, you have liberty in the Lord. Yes, it may even be innocent, but... How does it appear to the world? Don't give license to the devil to use something which is innocent as far as you are concerned to turn that against you and allow the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme him as a result of what you are doing and how you are living. 23... And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In reference ultimately to glorification. He wants you to be preserved and to be presented to him blameless without blemish, spotless, which is what glorification means. The moment you got saved, you were exonerated, you were justified, and you received his imputed righteousness. You were then sanctified, which means you were set apart for blessings and also set apart from judgment. How you live post-justification in some ways is really down to you. If you choose to be faithful and honouring and holy to him, he will use you, he will prune you, he will grow you. If you choose to be insubordinate, 
if you choose to backslide, if you choose to become worthless, then you will go under the judgment of God. And he will chastise you and he will deal with you as he sees fit. No two Christians are the same. No two Christians are going to suffer the same level of chastisement, the same level of judgment, the same level of pruning. The Lord won't deal with any two people the same way. But again, let's not approach the scriptures as what we can do and get away with. Let's approach the scriptures as what we want to do for him and how we want to live for him and how we want to go on with him and get a full reward. Body, soul and spirit. Man is a three-part being. Body, soul and spirit. 24. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Philippians told us that God began a work in us, and he will perfect it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you. Faithful is he that called you, who also will do it. It's the Lord's responsibility to get you to the judgment seat safely he made the world out of nothing he can resurrect the dead he can put people back together again and he will do that which he said he would do because he is faithful he will never leave you nor forsake you and he ever lives to make intercession for us when we need him and he is able to save us to the uttermost when we come unto him 25 brethren pray for us in reference to those that were living in paul's generation you cannot quote 25 and use that to prove quote unquote that mary can hear you and answer your prayer that saint christopher can hear you and answer your prayer that saint Teresa can hear you and answer your prayer no those people excluding mary of course may not have even been saved and yet millions of catholics around the world pray to Teresa Christopher Jude and all the other so-called saints to intercede for them and these people they don't even know for sure are in heaven in fact those people that the church of rome pray for could still be in purgatory according to their own teachings so let's just leave this verse as it is clearly presented here brothers pray for us you're here and now i am here and now please pray for us as we will pray for you don't read into the text what is not there. Just read the text as it is and take from the text what is clearly there and which is clearly intended for you to ascertain. 26. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. 
the moment you got saved, you were a saint and you were holy. You don't need some council of bachelor priests over in Rome to tell you who is holy and who is a saint. The moment you got saved, you are holy and you became a saint. This epistle was to be read in Thessalonica and also I believe in other churches too. I believe that the early churches rotated these epistles and they passed them around to one another. In fact, we know by 200 AD that the church as it was then had the entire New Testament and the church leaders by the end of the third century had quoted the New Testament 87,000 times. So the word of God has always been in circulation. What the Holy Spirit inspired he preserved and it's been with us throughout the entire last 2000 years even during the Crusades even during the Inquisition even during the Council of Trent we have always had the Bible yes it's been in different languages but we have always had the Bible this holy kiss is completely innocent it's not a French kiss it's not something inappropriate, it is simply a sign of affection between saved people. 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And that concludes First Thessalonians. That verse will conclude my verse-by-verse -verse Bible study. And I hope you were able to start with me. And I hope you were able to finish with me. And above all, I hope that you were able to read along with me. I do enjoy making these videos and hopefully if you have been able to join me for this just over two hour recording, you got some good meat from this video, you were edified and uh, hopefully you got the pre-tribulation rapture clearer in your head. I appreciate that for some it's not a clear cut issue as I say, most people either hold to the mid-trib rapture or the post-trib rapture. But for me, I hold to the pre-tribulation rapture. And uh, hopefully this non-scripted Bible study has gone some way in showing you why I believe that. Every blessing and Maranatha.